Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, I'm Brian Williamson and I'm the wind beneath the wings of others and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series. So I'm now going to hand you over to our host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Thank you very much indeed, Brian. And, and Brian, you've had a fascinating life, some 45 years of leading and managing others. And I think there's a lot of wisdom and experience that you can share. Would you perhaps... Um, Talk about what you're doing right now and, and some of the businesses that you've been leading and managing in the recent uh, last few years. Yeah, I'm uh, effectively in a non-exec capacity only now and have been for probably the last six years. So I'm the non-exec chairman with two businesses. Uh, I'm also a non-exec director in an investment organisation and I'm also the investment director in a technology business. Um, I help various people in various ways um, with their missions and challenges in life. And I've been managing people since I was 21 and businesses since I was 26. So there's a lot of learning in there. And hopefully most of that I will remember as you as we go through various topics, Jonathan. Yeah, great. Well, what, what a lovely uh, accumulation of experiences, of course. In those experiences, <clears throat> we make lots of mistakes as well as lots of successes. I don't know about you, but I... I've made more mistakes than I think you've had hot dinners. So I, I've got lots of experience. And uh, what is it? The um, Someone said that the more mistakes I make, the more I learn. I think I'm going to go out and make a few more mistakes. Um, yeah. So so take us back, if you would, Brian, to you know, the leader you are today was shaped by all those experiences you've had from a, a young lad. Talk us through some of the sort of moments in your life as you were, perhaps 10 minutes to Talk us through some of the moments in your life as you were growing up and the different jobs you did when you went into the business and the people who shaped you and the events that shaped you. I'd be really interested in that. Yeah, well, I was born in a tenement flat in the city of Stirling where I live, son of a waitress and a foundryman. So we didn't really have any um, business or entrepreneurial background. Um, but um, my mum and dad were were pretty influential in my life. And uh for some reason, I've tried to trace back in my historical past where it came from, but I seem to be an early entrepreneur. I remember at the age of nine, I managed to get everyone to come round to my garden shed. I persuaded the whole crescent that we lived in the, um, that they should donate their toys to me and I'll I'll sell them for them, do all the marketing, and we'll split the proceeds 50-50. So I do think I was the early proponent of eBay, but I don't suppose I've got deep enough pockets to take them. <laughs> but, uh, and for some reason, I really liked making money. And that was really what I would call the start of my entrepreneurial life. But I was very keen on sports. I was the senior boy sports champion, played basketball at Scotland Junior Men. So I thought my life was going to be a PE teacher. My father was in engineering and he persuaded me to come into engineering. And that was the fork in the road that really changed my life. Um, maybe I would have had a, a similar life had I gone in, in the other fork, but I didn't. 
And uh, I was lucky enough to work for a company called Weir Pumps who took in ingots of metal and planks of wood and out the other end of the door came pumps in crates. So I saw all the processes that you would imagine in engineering. It was great training and experience and they believed in putting you on the management ladder early. So I was managed my first department when I was 21 and I thought managing five women in a hundred million pound stock was uh, as, as hard as it gets. And then I got the job the following year when I was age 22 to look after 200 welders. And boy, that was a baptism of fire. Um, I did one of the big lessons, we might talk about this later, was in addition to my duties, I was asked to look after a 27 strong redundancy squad. So this was everyone from all the departments in a big factory and they decided to put them into one squad. Um, it was a very union environment at the time and said, we'll just put them under. So young Williamson got that job. And that was the biggest learning I've ever had in my life and for the best reason. So it really pivoted the way I managed people, dealt with people and perceived people in life. It was one of the backbones, really backed by being mentored by my father about how I should deal with people who I felt weren't like me. Um, so that was great. It wasn't destined for me to stay there because by the time um, I think you had to be 30 before you became a manager, I was a superintendent. So um, I was a bit impatient. So I left to become the managing director of a business when I was 26, a really um, young adopter of businesses. And I managed businesses for others for the next 12 years. And by a fate of circumstance, I got the opportunity to become an entrepreneur at the age of 38, left when I was, I think at the time, I, with my bonus, I was on a £100,000 a year, and this was 1994. It was a pretty big package, travelled the world, played golf with the workforce on a Friday afternoon and never worked at the weekend. And I became an entrepreneur thinking it was better. And I've often looked back and said, maybe I should have just stayed where I was. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I've cycled in and out of the era of businesses, um, bit of a life change in my um, situation um, due to a health scare in 2015. And that... What, uh, what, what happened, Brian? Well, uh, on the 29th of July, very memorable date, 2015, uh, I was sitting in the waiting room with my wife talking about, should we go to Marks and Spencer's and get some food or will we go out for a meal? Um, and in walks Paul, my surgeon, who said, if it looks like a duck, um, walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. I don't need to see the biopsy. You've actually got cancer. Uh, and that was just an unbelievable change. And as we're wow. both... My wife and I have reflected on it. it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I was on the trajectory of last man standing. I'd been at six in the morning and I'd leave when the last person had left in a business. I believe that was the right way to work. I've got a whole different perspective on what makes people productive and it's not that. Yeah, and in fact, just staying with that, I've had uh, three CEOs I've coached over the years, one who sadly died and two others who had very serious uh, one a brain tumor or a number of brain tumors and the other one very bad cancer. And they, uh, with their physicians, uh, no doubt there's a massive connection with the huge stress that they were under, the crazy hours that they were working. Is that something that you've learned that you just, you just can't burn your body uh, with the candle at both ends unless you're gonna face some serious health consequences? 
Absolutely. You don't know until it's, it's like anything where there's a displacement in time between your action and the result. So the big displacement, it's like people smoking cigarettes. They don't realise the danger until it's too late. Um, but I chaired a company who introduced a, a four-day working week uh, in 2016 and um, with no loss of wages and, and saw a 30% increase in productivity. And the analogy I use there, Jonathan, is that if you believe the fastest you can run 500 meters is a minute, therefore, if you're a mathematician, or, or you would say, well, you can surely run 5,000 meters in 10 minutes. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. So we realize the limitations of a physical being. And yet we say to people, why don't you work for six days or seven days and get more done? And you say, well, you're asking people to sprint for 5,000 meters. It's just not possible. Who's to say? When my father worked, he worked six and a half days a week to begin with. Who's to say we've ended up at five and five is the right number? So our four is designed for people to use a Friday and do some of the things that they feel they might be missing out in life. So they sprint for four days as opposed to trying to sprint for five. Mm, I, I really like that. And um, I'm sorry that you had that that uh, cancer scare. I. And I had a cancer scare a while ago and, and just recently came out of a, a, a long period of time in hospital where I was very ill uh, and I'm on the men now, but it, it, trying to get back to good health, it makes me realize I can't sprint at this. I no. have got to slowly recover it, it. The body just, otherwise it kicks back and makes you worse. W what happened or what was the, if you may ask, what was the cancer and, and, and have they cured it or are you in remission? What's the situation? Um, it was bowel cancer, and Paul, my surgeon, said I've, I've tattooed it because it's not big and I know where to go. So they they take a, a, a section out and they just join you back up. I got post-op chemotherapy as a, a bit of a belt and braces, and that lasted about five or six months. And that that's a ratchet where they poison you, um, you get better, but not quite back to where you were. And three weeks later, they poison you again, and you're on this sawtooth downwards. So it plays with your head. So as far as I was given the all clear uh, three years ago, they monitored me for three years, um, and I've had the odd scare. But you go back, and that's one thing about the health service. I love them. I wrote to the complaints department to tell them how much I really liked them, to give them a bit of a cheer up, because I felt mm -hmm. people were just going to be complaining. Um, it's, a, it's a massive organisation, hard to manage, but do a great job, in my opinion. So for me, that was a big shift change. And I need to change the way I do things. And my wife, who's been a bit of my life coach for the last part of my life, has often said, when you're working late at night and you send someone an email, think not about what the message you're sending them in the email, but what the message you're sending them because you're working late at night they feel obliged to do the same thing. So just curtail that impatience and realise that you're teaching them to do all the things that got you into the difficulty that you got into. Yeah, it's, it's a really big wake-up call for me, what you're just saying, and I hope people listening around the world, there's about 55 countries that people around the world are listening to this, uh, about 185,000 people, and it's in the top 1.5% of podcasts in the world because of people like you and their stories. And, and um, for those listening, they won't be able to see your amazing shirt. And those on YouTube can see this amazing Scottish shirt with blue and white. 
tell the story behind it. And also add at the end, when do you think, what date would you give for Scottish independence? Um, well, the, and I'll, I'll, I've got a real view on Scottish independence, but I, I got this shirt made to watch Andy Murray and the Australian Open um, and hopefully win. By the time I had managed to get um, to Melbourne, um, he had actually been injured. He was on a he was going for a back hop, so he didn't actually compete. I did see his brother Jamie, and I was proud to wear it. Um, so for me, it was a homemade shirt to celebrate Scott because I'm very Scottish. And despite the fact I was born in a tenement flat across from Stirling Bridge, which in 1297 we beat the English, and and then we moved to a council estate, and a hundred yards from that was was the Battle of Bannockburn, where we beat the English in 1340. <laughs> we haven't won much since, but um, the, you would think I, I would be all over Scottish independence. However, I am a proud Scot, but when it comes to the Olympics, I'm a Brit beyond belief. And when it comes to the Ryder Cup, you bet, despite Brexit, I'm a European. So you can be proud to be who you are within the confines, as people see it, of the UK, I like the stability in numbers because you catch a cold when you're a, a small nation and it could be severely damaging. I don't like the control aspect, and I think there's lots in politics we could go in and talk about. However, um, that's a, for another day, perhaps. But um, I think there, there's lots of dynamics that perhaps won't make independence work at this yeah. particular point in time. Uh, we were a divided household, so my wife wanted independence and I didn't. Because Alistair Darling was the he was the, the staying together man, um, and Alex Salmond was the was, it, we used to have to have an agreement. Say when we go to bed, we're not talking about independence because we had vibrant debates, and I would just be nipping off to sleep. And as I started to pass away to sleep, <laughs> he would say, "Good night, darling." <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love I'm still it. Married. <laughs> yeah, that's great. How many years have you been married now, Brian? Well, I've been married 12. I was married before. Uh, and then just like you have in life, sometimes you grow like a tree and you fork in different. So we ended up going off in different directions. So I, I remarried um, in 2012, um, which was fortunate enough to do that in Stirling Castle, which was a fantastic venue for a wedding, I have to say. Yeah, fantastic. No, that's really good. So over your life and the, the different experiences you've had, what would be the proudest moment and, and what did you learn from that? And what would have been your most difficult and darkest moment? And what did you learn from that? Well, I suppose um, I've had a, a, this is a bit like what was your, your best score at, at golf or something? And you do have a, um, a best score, but then you have a better score, but you're still kind of proud of the first time you, you broke whatever, 190, 80, 70. I used to have the proudest moment was converting a toxic environment, very much a union environment, into one that was the best performing business in a $4 billion group. And that was. However, later in life in my mid-50s, I invested in a business, took over as chief exec, and that business went from um, three customers um, and not a lot of business to the fastest growing SME in Scotland between 2010 and 2013. And I know that was done largely by the work that I did to get it to where it was going. So for me, that was really proud because later in life, I actually hired a whole host of people that were 
either retired or semi-retired who actually helped me build the business. And I called them Dad's Army. I was so proud that older people can add lots to businesses. It's just a question of where in the jigsaw did they fit in. So that's been my proudest moment of late, just because it was done at a time in my life when normally you say all your career is behind you rather than ahead of you. Um, the darkest moment is probably the a similar thing. A darkest moment was uh, I had a, an oil and gas business and I almost lost everything I owned. Um, I had a contract in the west coast of Africa in Cameroon. It was going like topsy. We needed some more money to put in the business. I had put my house up. I put I'd forty thousand of savings that I'd amassed over the years for a rainy day. I'd put that in. So I literally was all in in poker terms. Uh, but then our business kept growing and the working capital requirements, we grew from about 10 people in Cameroon to over 100. And to pay them on a weekly basis was consuming working capital. So the darkest moment was when the bank manager said to me, have you any other assets that you would consider putting up as, as collateral? And I said, well, I've got my mum and dad's house and Oh, he says, that, how much is that worth? And we went through the mechanics and he said, that would work. And I said, well, could I actually go home and, and tell my mum and dad that I put their whole livelihood and life at risk for the sake of me becoming a millionaire on this contract? I don't know if I can do that. And I said, I'll need to think about it overnight. And I went back in the following day and I said, I've decided there's no way I can tell my mum and dad that I put their house up. For me to become a millionaire so I've decided not to tell them that I'm putting their house up and so they won't know and uh, the contract went absolutely sour thereafter and I was within about 10 days of the bank foreclosing on um, my house my mum and dad's house the car that we had in the business my savings everything gone and that was my darkest moment at the time I don't know if anyone's really faced personal insolvency beyond any of your wildest dreams. Uh, we did get out of the situation, so it wasn't the ultimate dark moment. But by comparison to my cancer, we've just talked about the darkest moment is when you think you're going to die. And there's yeah. no doubt about it. That, that's that's a, what was life all about moment, yeah. as opposed to, I suppose I could have started again. It would have been hard with two kids and a wife and, and I who didn't get on particularly well at the time and a mum and dad all looking for accommodation. I could just imagine that would yeah. be hard. Yeah. Was, that, was that your ex-wife? That was my ex-wife, yeah. Yes, that probably didn't help uh, the relationship, I'm sure. Well, especially when she said, I said, look, we've been in the paper, a man's died on site, it was a whole story about it. I said, stay away from the front of the house and stay at the back. She said, well, I'll just get the car and go to my mum's house. I said, well, the news about the car is it's probably going away this afternoon, so I wouldn't even be moving the car. And she said, oh, this is ridiculous. I'll be stuck in this house on my own. I said, no, not on your own, because it looks like my mum and dad's coming to stay. So <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, I don't know if you've ever been stressed enough that I could not sit down a whole weekend. Yeah. I couldn't sit down and do anything. I walked about, must have lost about uh, half a stone in, in a day. It was, it's a terrible experience. And how did you get out of it? I got out of it. I sought um, the advice of a fellow entrepreneur and said, look, this is terrible. And he gave me the Churchillian speech of 
uh, you're in the Coliseum and here you are faced with the gladiators. You're just going to lie down and get stabbed in the, the, the neck or what are you, you're going to put a fight up. So he kind of gave me a bolstering talk and I, that was really refreshing because I thought, I'm going to go down fighting. So I actually used all the connections and contacts that I had, uh, that I knew. I went to their head office in France and I camped outside the door to speak to everybody, pleaded with them to say, look, my company's going down and my life's going with it. And uh, I remember the the day I was called to say, it looks like this chap has released £568,000. And that, I had a chart of what I could keep, depending on how much I collected. So along the chart, that was my mum and dad's house and my house. And then thereafter, every increment I got, I knew how close it would be to Malaty. In the end, it was a 2.1 million contract and we got 98.5% of our money. Wow, well done, well done. So I was really happy. So that became the darkest moment. It was the proudest moment, but you can always have a vision for a better history if you just tell it differently, can you? Yeah, oh yes, people are very very good at retelling stories and polishing it up. Yeah. Uh, that is um, that is a tough one, and I will remember that one for a long time, Brian. Um, now you've had all this wisdom and experience, you've been through some tough times, you've been close to death. I mean, we're all going to die. It's just a question of time. And yeah. I'm very pleased you made it through that. My, my dear brother, David, who is three years younger than you, has just died two months ago, oh, uh, uh, 10 weeks after he was diagnosed with metastatic cancer, which we never knew about and he didn't know about. Um, so, so it's going to happen to us all at, at some stage. Um, so uh, what sort of attitude have you learned from having been through um, knowing that you might die? Uh, what, what, what kind of attitude are you now taking to life? Well, I, I think um, I remember talking to some um, business people about this. And it, in essence, that um, there's, a, uh, there's an outcome that you're trying to get in a business. You're trying to achieve a certain thing. And I'm very target driven. But actually, when you look at your life, there's only one outcome in life. And just like you mentioned there, we all get there sooner than we would like. It's either six feet under or you're in the, the fiery grave. But um, it's there's only one outcome. Everything else is a journey. So you have to enjoy the journey. And that, for me, is the big thing I've learned. I don't get involved with businesses that they either don't like me, I don't like them, I can't add value, or they don't believe I can add value. Why would I do it? Uh, that's that's the job and I've got the luxury of not having to need a job therefore I choose to do the things I like and I work hard at making sure the things that I don't like how I manage them out of my life rather than in it it's not always easy to do but definitely enjoy the journey so our conversation is to enjoy the conversation rather than anything else yeah yeah, no, so agree that you know, live it minute by minute. Yeah, because you don't know if you're going to wake up tomorrow or if you're going to be uh, just not not coming back. Exactly. Um, a bit like uh, sort of my time on operations in the army. Sometimes you know, are you going out? Um, will you get blown up? Will you get shot on the way out? Or will you make it back? Um, mm. All this experience you've had, um, meeting the young sixteen-year-old Brian. Uh, some 50 years ago, what, what advice would you give if you went back to the future and, and gave a bit of wisdom to the young Brian? 
Um, well, probably uh, impatience is a virtue in business because it can be easy to be a, a manana-like person. So I'm, I have been in my life very impatient, but it can also be a millstone around your neck. So perhaps apart from enjoying the journey is to be a wee bit more patient. Uh, I think I sh should uh, have encouraged myself to be more inclusive. I know in one business, uh, I, my nickname was HMV, his master's voice, because it was my way or the highway. And I believed in what I was doing. So I was very, I believe I was a benevolent dictator, but still a dictator. Whereas the things I've learned from inclusion, listening to the views of others and why they have these views, and often because 90% of the view is not good, you don't listen 100% of the time, but you lose that 10% that would have added great value. So I think I would have been encouraging myself to make sure I'm really inclusive. Dictatorial people tend to, they tend to make businesses what they are, good, bad, or indifferent. And it is a quick way to get some success. However, the longevity of it, I think, is really about uh, how do you include as many different views as you can to make the whole outcome richer. Yeah, yeah, no, good, good wisdom. So, Brian, thank you for that. Um, I, I think recognizing his master's voice, I, I like that one, and uh, that you were quite dictatorial. I mean, I think back to myself as an instructor at Santos where I was quite dictatorial and didn't really listen and take advice, and it didn't work out particularly well. Um, I look, I look back, and I cringe at some of the behaviours I had, or the meetings I ran, and how bad they were. Now I'm teaching people how to run good meetings, knowing what bad meetings are like. Um, we're going to go around the Inspire Leadership Compass, which is based on the work that Lee, my wife, and I did, the research we did over the last twenty years about what makes high-performing leaders and teams. Um, the first of those eight components is moral quotient. Uh, MQ, you know, your values, your beliefs, the things you stand for and the things you won't fall for. What what will you stand for and what won't you fall for? Uh, well, in one way, the, the, there may well be, Jonathan, the opposite sides of the same coin. So uh, I like integrity and loyalty uh, and I don't like uh, a lack of integrity and a lack of loyalty. And by loyalty, um, you probably, from your forces background, there was there was a bit of um, a dictatorial loyalty. You're either loyal or you're in or you're out kind of thing. Whereas in business, uh, I, I don't like people who don't, if you do any anything around transactional analysis, that, that, that have a, a parent adult uh, child sort of thing. So for me, it's definitely having that adult-adult conversation. And that's what I like as opposed to what I don't like. Yeah, I do love the parent-adult-child um, and having an adult-to-adult -adult conversation um, and the appropriate response to the here and now that you are responsible for your own behaviour. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. And rather than taking it away from someone and trying to think for them, uh, what, what are their thoughts? I like that. Okay. Um, PQ, um, which is purpose question, meaning and purpose. What? Why have you done the things you've done? What has given your life meaning and purpose? I do think that the wind beneath my wings, which is, I was on a, a course recently online and something came to me about how would you describe yourself? And the wind beneath the wings is, actually you realise when you're at the top of an organisation, 
you don't actually do very much uh, other than how can you make others really thrive in their environment? How can you make them better? How can you make them bigger? So for me, um, my sense of purpose is I, just like a grandparent would do it through their grandchildren. I feel like, and I certainly deal with different generations now, I want to be in the wind beneath the wings of others rather than say I'm doing, I don't, I'm too old to win the sprint now. <laughs> so, uh, but I can help someone else do that. Yeah, I, I do like that, the wing, the wind beneath their wings. And, and also I heard something the other day which resonated for me. And the person said, in your firm, what do you make? And they started to talk about the widgets they made. I said, no, 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 that's not the most important thing you make. The most important thing that we all make is decisions as leaders. And if you're not making decisions or helping others make decisions, you're failing in your role. And I thought that was uh, very good. From PQ to HQ, health quotient, what is your advice? I mean, you've had a health scare. What's your advice on physical health and mental health? Now you're 66 and you're looking after yourself. What would your advice be? I certainly post, I was always a very sporty person, but post-cancer become really um in the summer, exercising every second day and wear a heart monitor and get my heart rate above, um, certainly above 80 and often into 90. Uh, and I, I do that religiously. Even when I don't want to do it, I say, I'd rather spend my lunchtime exercising. So I do, I'm fairly strict about exercising. So physically, I find I enjoy that and it, it keeps me good. I recently um, signed up for a course and going, I'm in the middle of it on neuroplasticity, which is it's bizarre. You, you do things like write with your non-dominant hand for a full day, which is really, really difficult. <laughs> um, and the other morning there, I had to, as soon as my feet hit the ground coming out of the bed, I had to close my eyes, go through the shower and get dressed without opening them. And it it's kind of rewires your brain. And I'm really interested. That's why I, I think... You, your lifelong learning is about how can you make sure you shape things up and change them because there's no doubt about it, as you get older, your life converges without any realisation. So you have to work hard at expanding not only the lungs but your brain. So I, I work hard at that. I've certainly not mastered it, but I really work hard at that. So, Brian, from health quotient on to emotional intelligence quotient, um, what would you give as a, a good tip uh, over the years that you've learned about um, getting rapport with people and uh, building uh, connection? Um, for me, it's, it's about active listening. And um, active listening isn't just listening. It's being interested, but being interesting. And the thing, if I'm... I, pre-pandemic was at many, many dinners and many often and sometimes sat next to someone that's perhaps not quite as interesting as, as they could be, but what would I learn from them? And in working out what I would learn from them, I have to ask lots of questions and I have to probe and be challenging. But in doing so, I learn a lot, but guess what? They enjoy it um, because people tend to enjoy talking about themselves. As, uh, and the tip that I've kept for having many meetings about many things with people is to keep a reflection diary. And I used to insist on it in one business because we had scientists um, speaking to customers and they tended to have 
brows that were 10 inches high and hair that grew at 45 degrees. So they perhaps didn't have the right level of conversation. So I asked them to reflect on what could they have done differently. And I think reflection, the power of reflection is a fantastic. Writing it down just, um, just cements it, if you like. I, I like that. So you did it for yourself, but you got them all to do it for themselves, the situations they learned from. Is that right? Yeah, and it's not a, it's not a, it's not a thing where you ask to discuss it with them because some most of the people we employ in one business had three degrees, so they're smart people to say, well, what do you conclude from that? But they say, well, when do we report back? So you don't have to report back. You report back to yourself because yeah. it's a very private thing. Otherwise, sometimes someone who admits they're having a difficulty is admission admission of inability, and you might therefore say, oh. I'm managing you and you're saying you're not able. So don't spoil the dynamic, the purity of your own reflections. Yeah, that's very good. I like that. It's a, it's a really good tip and I recommend people do that. Um, from EQ to CQ, cultural intelligence quotient, uh, diversity, quality, inclusion. Um, you know, w- when you're working with the, um, the welders, the 300 of those welders, uh, that's one group of people. Uh, but then what about people that, you know, in Africa that you're working with there? How do you adapt to different cultures and viewpoints? Um, well, I used to think uh, that inclusion was starts off as a gender thing because of gender inequality. And, and, and then, of course, it's anyone that's non-UK national. Um, but as I've traversed life, what I've found is inclusion in the, the widest sense. Uh, and I met a really interesting guy. Uh, Nicky McGowan, who used to work for us, and he's a self-confessed Ned. And if you don't know what that is, and uh, non-educated delinquent, he talks like a Ned. And, and he he came from a, a, a tenement building like myself. And yet, when I talk to him, he's chosen a he's got out of drugs and crime and into a business. And he goes into schools now and tries to persuade people before they reach the fork to take the left fork instead of the right fork, whatever it may be. And he's, his vision is to change the world one school at a time. And I, I really admire that. And I thought, if I met him, and I'm unlikely to meet him at any event anywhere, because he doesn't go to what I go to. Therefore, when he asked to have a Zoom meeting during the pandemic, I said, I've got a bit of time here. I was really fascinated by what I could learn from someone who is in an area of life that I don't include in my decision-making. So I have a regular dialogue with them, and now it's a case of, wow, everybody you meet, it's there's so much learning to come out of that, your understanding of life. So diversity is in its widest sense. It's not just age, it's not just gender, it's not just ethnic origin, it's a whole mix of things. Um, so, uh, But that requires you to treat everyone as your equal as opposed to looking down on them and having some sort of master-servant relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's back to your adult-adult relationship. And, yeah, my mother used to always have that attitude as she brought us up because my father was killed when I was three, so three boys Mm -hmm. uh, she brought up. Uh, We used to live in Lossiemouth in Scotland, near uh, Alvis, near Elgin. Um, And um, that that whole attitude about what are you going to learn from the person you're meeting? And I, I am ashamed to admit there's many a time I've uh, been with somebody and I thought, oh, this is so boring, you know, this is just, they're not my cup of tea. Then I thought, no, no, come on, remember, what can you learn? And 
as you mm. said, uh, asking great questions and yeah. being genuinely interested in their reply. I remember the uh, Duke of Edinburgh walking down the front row of our parade at Sandhurst. And, um, you know, he was saying, you know, where are you from? It's just someone who, you know, uh, he assumed was from overseas because he was black. Uh, and he said, I'm from Ghana, sir. Good. And where are you from? He says, I'm from Croydon, sir. Oh, are you English? Yes, sir. Oh, oh, right. And 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 how are how are you? My mother's just died, sir. Oh, good, good, good. Um, you could, he was not listening at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, he's had his moments, but that was certainly not one of his finest. Um, <laughs> RQ, uh, resilience, uh, coping with setbacks and adversities. Boy, you've had a few, haven't you? I mean, particularly that that Cameroon experience and almost losing both your houses, your car, everything. Uh, your parents' uh, place too. Um, how would you advise people to pick themselves up in times of adversity? I, reaching out to others um, that, that you would value, I think, is good. And I, I don't ask for much from anyone. Um, usually it's because I'm doing some charity thing, and I, and I wouldn't do that too often as people get charity fatigue. But... Um, this week, uh, I think I met two people and on their agenda was just to extract some knowledge, information, maybe connections. I would say, well, I tell you who you should speak to. I'll introduce you, pitch it this way or that way. So I'm very philanthropic with my time and I believe I'm putting the penny in the pot there. Um, and I'm therefore justified on the basis if I get into real times of difficulty, you can be heroic and you probably come from that background where you're taught to stiff up your lip and you just have to go on with it, is to ask for help when you need it. And it doesn't matter who you are because you're a lonely person as a CEO. I found that. And you can come home and talk to um, your partner, uh, but they've got a conflict of interest because they're looking mm-hmm. after your well-being. So they're not necessarily the most independent person to ask. So I'd say reaching out to others, uh, I would do it w- without fear because... I think I've done enough for so many people. They would, it's a bit like you've given so many people gifts. They would eventually say, could we give you one back? We've now got the opportunity. Yeah, no, it's a nice way of thinking about it. Um, to, to give without the expectation of anything in return. I'm yeah. always taken by the um, pay it forward uh, philosophy yeah. of finding two people um, who uh, you, you, uh, you do an act of kindness to them without expectation of anything in return, but you ask them to pay it forward to other people and um, without expectation of return from them either. Um, I think it's, it's really very nice. Send the lift back down if you've been lucky enough to get to the top mm-hmm. of the building. I did a thing at a conference recently where I said, put your, your, your um, business card in the bucket and at the end, take a business card out and work out how you could do that person a favour. And wow. I thought... This is going to be really powerful. There'll be bonds and friendships. I mean, it'll be, it was really hard because people are not used to it. But I think that's the sort of thing you have to do to say, just you'll feel great. You'll, you'll look at the eyes of a child when you give them a present on Christmas Day. That's how you're going to feel. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. There's, there's too little of that around and we need yeah. more of it. Um, brand, reputation, image and impact. How... Over the years, particularly when you're a CEO or a chairman and non-executive director, how have you kept your feet firmly on the ground and listened to feedback on you 
Because the danger is the higher you get as a chairman, a CEO, a Ned, a partner, whatever it is, the more everything smells of new paint and you have brand new <laughs> toilets and everybody else tells you what they think you want to hear. How, how have you had real honest feedback? Have you had your own coach? What, what have you done? Well, if I go back to the redundancy squad that I got, that uh, as far as managing them, the difficulty was um, they said, I'm not doing that. Are you going to fire me twice with the knowledge of the union at the back? And you're in an impossible situation. So you have to try and manage by consent with 27 people in death row. Got some great advice from my father who said to me, you've got to treat everyone as an equal. Get to know them as a person, understand them and get to know their likes, get involved in their life and throw away that spreadsheet for the first week. And if they do nothing, it doesn't matter. And this was on the back of a, a real horrendous amount of tasks, painting the railings in the car park and everyone's car got painted on it. I mean, it was just an, an absolute nightmare. But I came through that and I managed to get a right-hand man, Frank, who was the furnishman, who you bent nose and you wouldn't want to meet him in the dark night. But in the end, he became my right-hand man, managed everyone much better because I really got to know them as people. And when he shook my hand, and I often get emotional about it at the end, he says, well, I've had a great eight weeks here. And he said, I might not have been in this squad had I met you earlier. And I thought, I'm only bloody 23 here. Mm. I mean, I'm 23 and this guy's, he was ancient. He's probably 50 to me. He was an older guy. And it made me realise that that what my father had taught me was to respect everyone in the same way as if they were like you, they were your brother, your sister, and that respect. So for me, it was create that respect and be have your brand as I'm a respectful person and make a point of speaking to everyone at every level and ask them not good morning. How are you doing today? That's whether it's someone cleaning a toilet is Cricky, you've got your hands, your work out today. How, how are you feeling about it? You know, what time does it take? But be known as a respectful person. Uh, many things have come up as you speak about that. Before I talk further on that topic, because it's a very interesting one, there was that lovely throwaway line that they had to paint the railings, but they ended up painting people's cars. Tell me more. What happened? Well, the exuberance in painting round railings the overspray was onto the onto the cars. So the gateman, we didn't have mobile phones then. We had my buzzer went off, phoned the gatehouse, says, Brian, you need to come down here, it's carnage. They've got about 10 people complaining their new car has got splashes of paint all over them. So it was a disaster. And as I walked up through the machine shop, um, one of the tasks was to paint the, the test bed floor. And one chap had painted himself into a corner, couldn't get out. So they had to lift them out of the rope harness on the overhead crane. So everyone had stopped working on the machines. And were, And I was this young, enthusiastic manager who was going to show everybody, all my peer group were 15 years plus older than me, and I was going to show them up and how you should manage people. And that was the laughing stock. So that led me to go to my father to say, this has been the death knell of my career in here. And, yeah. friends, and there's a solution to this. And I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll put you on that pathway, he said. Well, what a wise father that you had. Yeah. And um, I, I do think it's always very interesting 
whether you've got the forlorn hope or you've got the the guys on death row yeah um, you have to find a way of leading people i i had some pretty poor quality soldiers at some stage and the bit of good advice i had from an old sergeant major was do you know their personal stories sir and i said what do you mean he said have you asked them about their life their family the football club they support whether they've got any kids any brothers any sisters how they grew up i said no i've never done that he said well do it and I, after that i always had a little black book which i didn't show publicly but it had all the details about them all and before i went to see some of them I'd, I'd look up my little black book my platoon commander's notebook and i put it away and i'll go um so campbell um how's um how's your how's your football team doing i i i, I you know it's uh, hips, isn't it? That you, yeah, it is. You know, and, and there was that connection because nice. I, w- I was genuinely interested. And you know, to another, I, I hear you've got a, a wee baby on the the way, and he goes, "Yes, it's a little girl." And, mm-hmm. and and knowing people's life story to this day, I think is the most profound thing. Going for a, a walking meeting with people and finding out what their life story is, I think, is deeply, profoundly powerful. Um, thank you for that, Brian. That's really triggered in me a number of things. Um, brand. Um, y- y- you talked about you know, father and what he taught you. And from brand onto legacy, um, what as you know, you and I are gonna die, it's a question of when, but what how would you like to be remembered when you do die? Um well, I did a charity climb of Kilimanjaro in 2007, and you spend a lot of time with people and reflecting on life. Uh, and that was, I guess, um, on the back of um, both my daughters um, telling someone what I do for a living. And I thought, that's really interesting, but that's not actually what I do. And thought, they don't even know me. So my um, wish, and I've been working on a platform, investing in business and how to do that, was how do you pass on the knowledge and wisdom that you have in different situations? How do you put that old head on young shoulders, help them navigate life, put more tools in the toolbox? Um, Because they're going to trip and slip on the same things that you did. Perhaps you can help and give them a bit of wisdom earlier on. So that, for me, is the legacy I want to leave behind. I very much like that. And I, I really resonate with that because this podcast I do, I don't make any money from it. It's just my way of paying it forward to other people um, through meeting interesting leaders like yourself, having a discussion and passing on your wisdom to them, but also some things that I've been taught along the way and mistakes I've made. And and I think it is a nice way of leaving a legacy that you know many thousands of people in different countries will gain something from our conversation today which might make them a better leader or a better husband or a better wife, uh, better son, uh, better father, better mother, better daughter. Um, I think those are very important. Executive teams, you've worked with many executive teams over the years and you've seen good ones, you've seen bad ones. What's your advice on turning around a toxic team to make it into a high performing team, Brian? Well, an opposite, this is again, sometimes what you like and dislikes, the opposite side of the same coin, isn't it? But um, about 30 years ago, I was asked to to come in and break the unions in a a business. And that for me was, um, I had my own personal style on how to do that. Many in the Swiss headquarters thought I'd 
I'd requisition some horses and drive the workforce into submission. Um, it was a toxic environment. I did discover that the first six months I spent 70% of my time doing union stuff, negotiations and that. But through a period of, of deep engagement, getting to know the individuals, what they stood for, what they wanted, you find that the majority of people are actually really nice people. There's the odd toxic person. But therefore, rather than um, play that game, I spoke. I wouldn't speak through the convener at that time. I'd just have a mass meeting. I got to know what they really wanted. And what they really wanted was to be valued and respected and rewarded rather so. So I agreed to give them the best wages in the area within my end of my three-year term in the business. And we were two doors down from Rolls Royce. So that was a pretty big uh, commitment. But I said, I'll do that. But for you, I want from you no demarcation other than ability, and I reserve the right to train you. And over a period of three years, they became the best paid in the area. We became the best performing group, and the toxic people left. And I remember, I won't mention his name, I don't think he'll be alive, but when the convener said, I'm handing in my notice, I'm leaving, I said, well, why are you leaving, Jimmy? And he said, it's just not the same. And I thought, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's just not the same. The workforce painted their own floor. When I told them customers were coming around, mainly from the Far East or the Middle East, we had Gavin in the saw wore a tie. And he was the lowest paid in the factory. He wore a tie out of respect for the people. I said, these people pay all our wages. And I that was my last proper job, and I loved it. And I, I loved it because if you really get involved, toxic teams aren't toxic teams. They're toxic environments or a non-listening environment or there's someone in there and often management give them the ammunition for the people who stir things up to make it worse take away that ammunition and they can't fire any bullets yeah oh, good uh, really wise advice really mm -hmm. wise advice uh, and brian we were talking before we um we went on air about different books and you've read a lot of books you said you set yourself the rule of reading 20 books a year uh, in the last three years, I've read um, 200. Um, they, I'm, I'm dyslexic. I think they call us neurodiverse. So, so my way was listening to them. Yeah. Um, and some of them are pretty weighty, like Churchill's, which is a uh, biography <laughs> by, by um, um, I think of the name, uh, Andrew, somebody in a moment. Um, it, it, it's 50 hours worth of listening. So it's a sizable read. Um, but you and I both like, learning from books that we read and, and I said you know what about leadership how, how do you learn about leadership you talked about podcasts you talked about a variety of books would you just share a bit more yeah I, I do think leadership is such a multifaceted uh, discipline that it's really hard to find a book uh, and it can be a bit success bias in as much as we can examine the life and world of Bill Gates and he hopped in his left leg seven times in the morning, therefore let's all do that. So it can be because he's been successful, everything he does is therefore what we should do. So I don't subscribe to that. I do like to have a bit of diversity. So I do listen to lots of podcasts and yours would be one of them. Um, there's some books that I've personally liked. There's a, a book called The Big Bluff by Maria Kornikova, which is a psychologist that learned how to be a professional poker player. And because I like poker and I think it parallels with business so much, uh, I, I really like that. Early Doors, I used to read a lot of Malcolm Gladwell's books, the, the kind of 
from the era of blink and tipping point and maybe talking to strangers. I like a book that's thought provoking that, that afterwards you really mull over what's in there. Um, one of the most recent happiness books was the Mo Goddard book who lost his son when I think his son was 21. And he examines where happiness lies. And that really resonated with me having been through a health scare. And like you, um, my eyesight and patience has got to a stage where I'm an audible person now. So I'm in the, the car for an hour. I think, great, I'm going to listen to my book. So, um, but on the social front, Bill Bryson's a great read in the, the body. And I love that because it makes you appreciate the miracle your body is. It is unbelievable. So, and he's got a really nice turn of phrase and style. So I've got to read quite an eclectic mix. I was the ultimate only business books. And that's me. I didn't, I never read anything that, that was fiction. I just, but I've kind of grown to try and expand that to say there's lots to learn outside that and it can be related to business yeah and and um thinking about uh, uh books on on the body um, i'm listening to one at the moment called 10 percent human uh which is about the microbiome and the, the bacteria that live in our body so our body is only 10 percent human the rest of it is bacteria and uh different little organisms and cells living in us and you just don't realize this it's just fascinating um, the, the, the book you talked about on happiness, about the person who lost his son, what was the book called? I think it's called Happiness. Um, happiness, okay. Yeah. And uh, no, it's called Solve for Happy. Solve for Happy, okay. Oh, this well, the Solve for Happy. Is a, it, it is a quite a heart-wrenching thing, but he, he, he talks about his son in a way I could never imagine talking about one of my children if they had died at that age. Yeah. I, I guess he's gone through a a period to be able to do that yeah no i can't imagine what it's like so Brian, we're now um down to the uh, the final top tip so yeah. if uh, this is a standalone as well as part of the main recording but if you just briefly introduce yourself again um and then give your two minute top tip hi i'm brian williamson and um in the inspiring leadership uh, series i'd like to give you my top tip and my top tip is creating a social contract of mutual respect, which is something my father taught me uh, early on in my career when I was dealing and managing a difficult group of people. And uh, other people would call it in different ways, but I call it a social contract of mutual respect. And what that means is treating everyone as equals. And after all, we all came out the womb knowing nothing um, much uh, and our fortune uh, and what we've learned is all about where you were born into what parents. Uh, so we didn't choose our environment that we were born into and we didn't choose our parents. So that was all down to luck. Therefore, why should we not be equal as we progress through life? It's just the environment and the parents that are the difference between us all. So my tip is Take a real interest in others. And I think we mentioned earlier on together there, Jonathan, that the, the fact is it's a genuine interest, I think is the way you put it. And I, I do believe that. Um, so having that interest, if someone peeps their horn at you when you're in the, uh, whether it's metaphorically or whether it's actually when you're driving, I always think that it's often more about them 
than it is about you. Mm. So the two greatest in gifts in life for me are tolerance and understanding. And I think if you can employ them wherever possible, treating everyone as your equal and no master-servant relationship, then I don't think you'll do too badly. Fantastic. Brian, thank you very much indeed. It's been a real privilege having you on the Inspiring Leadership Series, and I wish you every success with your health, your wealth, and your happiness. Yeah, you too, Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me. It's been delightful. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.